Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. If you have your copy of God's Word taken, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We began looking at this chapter last Lord's Day. And Lord willing, we will finish looking at this chapter next Lord's Day. And we find ourselves right in the middle, verses 9 through 14. And as I read through this portion of Scripture and began studying it, it made me remember uh, a very interesting fact about my childhood. Have you guys ever played that game, Two Truths and a Lie? Ever played that game? It's like an icebreaker in a crowd, Two Truths and a Lie, or maybe you played Fibbage on that internet game, whatever it's called. Um, we did that last week, actually. We played as a little group in our uh, house, some of the people that stayed behind from uh, our get-together on the Lord's Day after our church service together, we all hung out, we were playing this game, and you have, to, you have to make up some lie that people would think is believable about you, and then you have to put a truth next to it, and they have to figure out which one's real, which one's not, two truths and a lie. Uh, one of the things that I always put in there that I can't anymore because I'm going to tell you is that I've only lost one tooth naturally. I've only naturally lost one tooth. Um, all of my teeth were pulled except for two. One was naturally fell out, and one was knocked out by a friend. He is still my friend, but he did knock it out. And all of the other teeth pulled by the dentist because I had crazy teeth problems. And when I would sit in the dentist's chair and they'd get ready to start working on pulling my teeth, the dentist would pull out the little shot of Novocaine and it'd you know, drip at the end of the needle and, and he'd say, okay, you're going to feel a little pinch, which is, I mean, talk about true truths and a lie. That's a lie right there. You're going to feel a little pinch, more like a burning fire in my mouth. It hurt really badly. But why does the dentist say that to you? If you've ever gone through some medical procedure, if you've ever gone through something where the doctor has to administer some sense of pain to you, rarely do they ever just go right at it and do it. They normally say, hey, you're going to feel something. This is going to hurt a little bit and then it'll be okay. They do that because they're trying to help you prepare for that moment. Maybe you grip the dentist chair a little bit harder. Maybe you look away. Whatever it is, you're trying to find some way to get ready to deal with what is coming next. And the doctor, the dentist, they're trying to help you prepare. Verses 9 through 14 in the book of Daniel, it's God telling his people, you're going to feel a little pinch. It's God preparing his people for persecution. And as we stare at the way that God prepares them, I think that we will find out he does the exact same for you and for me. How he prepares them is the same way that he prepares us. Why he prepares them is the same reason he prepares us. And so we are going to stare together. I know it's a short section, but we're going to stare together at this small section of God preparing his people. Chapter seven was prophetic about four different world empires that will then end and culminate in this final world empire. Chapter eight is narrowing down to two of those empires. And now in the middle of chapter eight, we're just zeroing in on one person. And God is doing all of it to prepare his people. So let's read this section. We read the entire chapter Last Lord's Day, we're just going to read this section. Let's begin in verse 8 and read down to verse 14. Daniel 8, verse 8. Then the male goat, so remember that's Alexander the Great, 
magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as it was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of those horns came forth a rather small horn, and it grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and it caused some of the host of the, some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. And it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and will throw truth down to the ground and do its will and succeed. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes desolation so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, but then the holy place will be made righteous. Father, we thank you for this incredible section of your word. Truth on display. Prophecy is so amazing. We've studied it the last few Sundays. Why it is so profound, so incredible, so majestic, so glorious. And yet again, we find ourselves in a prophetic section where we have seen all of these things literally take place in history. We've seen exactly what you said was going to happen in the future actually happen. And yet sometimes I think we come to prophetic sections of scripture and we forget to be absolutely undone by the reality of you saying what is going to happen before it ever happens. So Father, I pray that you would enable us this morning to have fresh affections for you, our God, who knows the end from the beginning, declaring the end from the beginning, telling us exactly what's going to happen. And then specifically to your people, you love us and you do not want us to go blindly into suffering and persecution. And so you have prepared your people, whether it's Old Testament Israel or whether it's us now as your church, you are preparing all of us. So I pray that we would hear your preparation this morning, that we would live according to it and that we would see the motivation of you, our heavenly father, loving us and preparing us for the days ahead. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This section is so short and so unified that I really don't want to break it out into different points. I really just want to take it as a whole. And so what we're going to do is we're going to say two different big picture ideas this morning. We're going to look at the explanation of verses 9 through 14. We're going to explain it all. And then we're going to look at the encouragement that we should get from these verses. So we'll look at the explanation of these verses and encouragement from these verses. And I just want to let you know, the explanation of these verses is entirely historical. And for me, I just geek out on history and I love this. And Lord willing, uh, you will be able to love this as well. If you love history, man, this is going to be for you. If you don't love history, my apologies. We will get to some other things in the future. But I think that this is absolutely fundamentally important for us to understand. And I think that as we go through it, you will find yourself freshly amazed by how awesome history actually is. So let's look at the explanation of verses 9 
through 14. Out of one of them, them meaning in verse 8, those four conspicuous horns. So you remember you have uh, the goat and the ram. You remember you have these two different warring uh, groups, these warring people. At the beginning of chapter 8, you saw this ram that began. That ram was Medo-Persia, one horn's longer than the other. And then you have this goat that shows up and destroys the ram. And the goat that destroys the ram is Alexander the Great and his empire of Greece. But when he dies, 22 years after his death, there are four divisions of the Greek empire that began ruling almost autonomously on their own. Four divisions. And so those are the four horns in verse 8. We talked about this last week. Uh, Antipater and later Cassander in Macedonia ruling, Lysimachus in Asia Minor ruling, Seleucus in Syria ruling, and Ptolemy in Egypt and Arabia ruling. So those are the four divisions. Those are the four horns. And verse 9, out of one of those horns, specifically the Seleucus Empire, the Seleucus Empire, the, the empire in uh, Syria, out of one of those four conspicuous horns comes a rather small horn. And it grew exceedingly great. And it grew, and it grew, and it gained power. It gained power. It grew all the way toward the beautiful land. My Bible says beautiful land. Your translation probably says something similar. Beautiful land is, is Israel. That's, that's Daniel's hometown. That's Daniel's homeland. That's what he loves, the beautiful land. So this little horn, this small horn, grew up in such a way where it goes all the way from where the Greek empire would have been all the way down into Israel. And so what Daniel's seen is, Israel having regular sacrifices that this little horn's going to come in and destroy. Obviously, there's a temple now in Israel. He's seen, Daniel's seen a future time where Israel will be inhabiting their land again. And yet there's going to be a tyrant that's going to walk all over them. Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 deals in very specific detail about this tyrant, this little horn, this small horn. This man's name is Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. He was born in modern-day Iran in 215 BC. He died in 164 BC. His sister was Cleopatra II, so we're around that time period. He is the eighth king of the dynasty that was begun by Seleucus. So it's the Seleucid dynasty. He becomes king in 175 BC. And he is king all the way through to 164 BC at the time of his death, which we'll talk about next Lord's Day. He was incredibly passionate about Greek culture. He worshiped their gods. He worshiped Zeus. And then he began to be so uh, infatuated by Zeus and by himself that he thought that he was the physical representation of Zeus to the people who were around him. And that's where he gets his nickname. Some, some of you might know Antiochus IV. His nickname is Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes is... Uh, a, a word describing the, the human form of God being manifest. That's what epiphanies mean. God manifest in human form. So he is declaring himself. He gave himself that nickname. I am God in human form. I am Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, the Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes. Similar sounding name. Epimenes means crazy madman. And they didn't like him at all. And he's a terrible person. Absolute terrible person. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says that he is a, quote, slick and godless piece of scum. I love that. He's awful. 
He grows up, he gains power as king in the Seleucid dynasty. And he grows up, verse 10, to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and tramples them down. Now that could be a difficult um, saying, a difficult phraseology of the host of heaven or the stars to be trampled down. But remember, we are in that apocalyptic literature. We're in that imagery. We're talking about a ram, a goat, and a little horn. So stars, if you just write down in your notes, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, um, stars are referenced to be Jewish people. So this is um, Antiochus Epiphanes going into Israel and trampling down the Jews. And historically, he does that. He invades in the country of Israel with his whole army, which is a lot of people. And verse 11, he magnifies himself to be equal with the commander of the host. That is God himself. He wants to be a God himself. He wants to be set up in God's place. He calls himself Zeus. And he removes the regular sacrifice. And the place of his sanctuary is thrown down. He puts an end to daily sacrifices in the temple. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes um, forbade the circumcision of Jewish infants. He made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. He magnified himself. He threw down any sacrifices in the altars, in the temple, and any form of worship of Yahweh. And verse 12, on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. He's going to own it. He's going to hold it. He's going to throw truth down in Jerusalem, trample it to the ground, do his will in Jerusalem and succeed. And that's exactly what happened in history. We see an account of this in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, there is a set of books. Apocrypha just is the Greek word to conceal. It's the opposite of apocalypse. So apocrypha is to conceal. Apocalypse is to unveil and to reveal. The apocryphal books, there are 14 of them, and those apocryphal books were written around the time period of these events happening. They were written about 100 years before Jesus was born. They were written in Greek. They weren't written in Hebrew. And so when Jerome uh, came to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, which became the Latin Vulgate in the 300s AD, when Jerome did that, Jerome looked at the Old Testament scriptures that we know, they're in Hebrew, the New Testament scriptures that we know that are in Greek, and then he found these 14 books that are in Greek dealing with Old Testament time period and not New Testament time period. So he found it odd that these books weren't written in Hebrew. The church did not testify to these being inspired, inerrant, infallible scripture. And so Jerome said, I'll translate them, but I'm going to put them in a separate category. These 14 books are not scripture. So he's one of the first, along with Augustine, who said, these books are strange. We don't know what to do with them. They're definitely not scripture. There's something that we can get from them, but we're going to set them aside. It was that way, actually, all the way up until the Council of Trent in the 1500s, when the Roman Catholic Church said, no, 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 those books are actually inspired, infallible, inerrant scripture. Those are God's words to us. And so they codified them as being a part of God's word. Just a couple of reasons why we know they're not. Um, the apocryphal books disagree doctrinally with the Bible. There's praying for the dead advocated in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, which is in direct opposition to the gospel of Luke and to Hebrews 9. The apocrypha contains uh, an episode where God is lying, where he is actually lying and helping other people lie, which we know the Bible clearly says in Titus chapter 1, God cannot lie. So we know that there's also no claim in those books those 14 apocryphal books, we know there's no claim of them being inerrant, inspired, infallible. So we know that they're not scripture. That being said, 
they have some aspect of historical accuracy attached to them. There are history books. And so in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 21, which is an apocryphal book, I want you to listen to the way that they describe Antiochus Epiphanes living out what's happening in Daniel chapter 8, specifically in 8 verses 10 through 12. First Maccabees says this, quote, Antiochus arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light and all of its utensils. He also took the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the gold decorations on the front of the temple. He stripped all of it away. He took the silver, took the gold, took the costly vessels. He took the hidden treasures that he found. He took them all. And then he went back to his own land and he shed so much blood and spoke with such great arrogance. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. He wanted to take over the whole world. He became so powerful and um, so narcissistic and egomaniacal that he wanted to take over the whole world. He had two main empires that he had to fight against to take over the whole world, Egypt and Rome. In 170 to 169 BC, he invaded Egypt, never fully conquered it, partly because of a buddy of his that kind of betrayed him. So he went back feeling frustrated that he felt betrayed by this buddy and didn't get to destroy Egypt and gain control of Egypt. So he went back through Jerusalem to get back to his hometown. And as he went back through Jerusalem, he just beat up on the Israelites because he was so angry that he didn't conquer Egypt. Second Maccabees chapter five, verse 11 talks about this trip from Egypt after, you know, kind of his tail between his legs, struggling with feeling betrayed and not winning and walking through Israel. Second Maccabees 5.11 says this, raging inwardly, Antiochus left Egypt and took the city of Jerusalem by storm. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly anyone that they met to kill those who went into their homes then there was a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women and children, a slaughter of young girls and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were killed. Then, one last piece of information from history. In 168 BC, Antiochus said, I'm going to try this again. I'm going to go back through Jerusalem go over to Egypt and I'm going to try and destroy Egypt and gain control. And then all I have to do is fight against Rome. Rome had a little bit of a military outpost in Egypt and was trying to work with Egypt. And so before he goes to invade Egypt again, a guy by the name of Lanus, and Lanus is a Roman general. Lanus says, time out Antiochus. You need to understand we have control of Egypt. We're working with them. And if you fight against Egypt, you fight against us. You need to know that. And so he gave him an ultimatum. If you want to fight to conquer Egypt, fine, but we will now be at war with you. If you don't want to be at war with Rome, then just go home. Typical politician that he was, Antiochus said, I need time to think about that ultimatum. Some of you might know what happened next. It's a very famous story. Lanus said, okay, I'll give you all the time you need. And he drew a circle around Antiochus in the dirt, drew a circle around him and said, take all the time you need, but before you step out of that circle, you need to have made your decision. You don't make a move until you decide what you're going to do. So stand in that circle all you want. But when you step out of that circle, you have made your choice. So Antiochus decides, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm not going to fight Egypt. And so he starts to go back through Jerusalem again to go back home. And now he is even more frustrated, angry, and mad 
than he was the first time he went through. And this is when he does the most drastic persecution of the Jewish people that had ever happened up until that point. 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 29 says what he did. The king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute. He came to Jerusalem with a large force. It was more than 20,000 soldiers. He spoke words of peace to them that were deceitful. They believed him, but he suddenly fell upon the city. He dealt a severe blow and destroyed many of the people of Israel. He plundered the city. He burned it with fire. He tore down its houses. He surrounded its walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. And then 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 54 says, On the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year of the Seleucid dynasty, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. That uh, desolating sacrilege. If you go down to verse 13, you can see the angel talking about this. The regular sacrifice is going to be done away with and a transgression that causes desolation is going to happen. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He goes into Jerusalem. He destroys the altar. He erects an altar to Zeus and he sacrifices a pig on that altar in a Jewish temple. It really doesn't get much more offensive than that to a Jewish person. Antiochus was incredibly angry and he just takes out his anger and aggression on the Jews. Second Maccabees chapter six, verse two continues. It goes into more detail. He causes them to pollute the temple in Jerusalem to call it the temple of Olympian Zeus. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil for the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. Antiochus brought the worst persecution the Jews had ever seen. He made it illegal to be a Jew in Jerusalem. He set up idols in the temple. He murdered and sacrificed Jews to his God in the temple. He stopped the sacrificial system that the Jews had. He established a new calendar that we talked about in the last chapter. He set up altars in every Jewish village and demanded that pigs be sacrificed on those altars. He's a crazy man. By the way, this is the time period that the Pharisees and the Sadducees happened. They, they begin in this time period. And they begin as Jews understanding the process of Hellenization, becoming Greek, where uh, the Greek um, religion and economy and politics is forced onto you. There were two main types of people in that moment. One that said, fine, we'll do whatever. We just don't want to die. We'll compromise. That's who ends up becoming the Sadducees. And then there's a group that says, we will never bow. We will not bow down. That's the Pharisees. It's very interesting that when we look in the New Testament, the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys, but they actually started out the way I think you and I would want to start out as oppression and persecution uh, heads into their village and into their town, they say, we will not bow. We will not convert to your religion. It's just, they began to trust in that and then became legalistic. They built walls around their laws so that you could never get them to disobey their laws. So Antiochus takes over. He's destroying anything. He's causing oppression, persecution. How does his reign end? How does his reign end? Last piece of history before we move on to the encouragement that is supposed to come from these verses. He is stopped by the heroic actions of a man by the name of Judas. His nickname is the hammer, which that word, the hammer in Hebrew, it's 
from the form of a word, uh, Maccabeus. Um, so Judas Maccabees, maybe you've heard of him. Judas Maccabees, that's first and second Maccabees comes from his name. Judas Maccabees. Judah the Hammer. It's a good nickname. He lived in a village just outside of Tel Aviv. There was an altar that was set up in that village and you were demanded by Antiochus Epiphanes to sacrifice a pig on the altar. And so a bunch of soldiers from Antiochus's army walk into this village and they tell a man by the name of Matthias, who is Judas's dad, they tell Matthias, uh, you need to sacrifice. He was the high priest, he's the oldest man and he's the high priest in the village. You are called by Antiochus Epiphanes to sacrifice a pig on this altar to Zeus. And Matthias says, over my dead body, I'm not doing that. A, a younger priest in training goes, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And so he goes and he takes the pig and he gets ready to slaughter it. And Matthias gets so angry at this turncoat Jew that he takes a sword from one of Antiochus's generals, pulls it out of its sheath and kills this young priest. And Judas's sons see what he's doing. They grab swords from the people around them and they kill all of the Antiochus Epiphanes soldiers. You can, can you just, I mean, this is a movie. This is a scene from a movie, right? Just massive battle, massive bloodshed. And then everybody's just kind of huffing and puffing, looking at all the dead bodies going, what did we just do? And Matthias says, we just started a war. That's the first battle of the revolt of the Maccabees. That's the, Ma that's the beginning of the Maccabean revolt. And people says, hey, if it's that easy to take over Antiochus's army, we'll join. So they start this underground guerrilla warfare rebellion that starts fighting. They only fought at night. They would hide in caves. They would sleep in the day. They would hide in the day. And then they'd go out at night and start uh, killing all of Antiochus Epiphany's army. They go all the way down. It's an amazing story. They go all the way down. Matthias dies about a year into the revolution. And so uh, Judas, Maccabeus, uh, takes over and he's the general of the army. And they get all the way down to Jerusalem and they find their way into the temple. And Judas says, we are going to gain control of the temple. We're going to take it back. They tear down the altar that was built to Zeus. They erect a new one and they want to rededicate the temple. They want to cleanse the temple, rededicate it to Yahweh. And there's a whole process of ritualistic cleansing that they need to go through. And one of the things that they have to do after taking over the temple and cleansing it is they need to uh, purify the oil to be able to offer it to the Lord. And it takes about eight days to do that. And so they need light for those eight days to be able to purify the oil, to be able to offer to God, to rededicate the temple. And the book of 2 Maccabees chapter 10 tells us that they find there's only enough oil in the temple for one day and they think we can't rededicate the temple. And you know the story. Miraculously, the oil is enlarged and elongated to provide eight days worth of light in the temple for them to be able to rededicate the temple to the Lord. By the word, you know the Hebrew word for dedication. What is it? It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Hebrew word for dedication. It is the remembrance. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. It's going to happen in December 19th of this year. Um, it's the dedication of, uh, it's the remembrance of the dedication of the temple. When Judas Maccabeus took over the temple, took it away from Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll talk about the way that he dies next Lord's Day. And they dedicate the temple to the Lord. And they say, we have, we've taken it back from the hands of godless pagans. And that's exactly what is prophesied here. 
In verses 13 and 14, the angel says to the other angel, how long is this going to happen? How long is this madman going to gain control of the temple, stop the sacrifices? How long is it going to happen? And the answer that he's given is verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, but then the holy place will be made righteous again. There's going to be evil happening there. There's going to be pagan idolatry happening there. But at the end of 2,300 days, it will stop and you'll get it back. And the getting back of the temple is the celebration of Hanukkah. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, there's two ways that you can take this. Either it is 2,300 evenings and mornings, meaning it's half of 2,300, meaning 1,150 days. This is a little over three and a half years, or it's about three and a half years. Or it's 2,300 evenings and mornings, meaning one day, so it's 2,300 days, which would be about six years and four months. There's ways to make both of those work. Either it could be a reference to when Antiochus Epiphanes first overthrows the high priest in Jerusalem and all the way up until his death, that would be about six years and four months. Or it could be when Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple Uh, erected that statue to Zeus, began offering the pigs on the temple. That would be about, from that time period to the rededication of the temple, that would be about uh, three and a half years. So you could take it one of two ways. Either way works. Uh, I personally think it's actually 2,300 days, just the entire six years and four months. When we come to the end of this section, there's the history for you. We come to the end of it, and we ask the question, so what? (laughs) I mean, Merry Christmas, right? You, you came to church to be encouraged by the word of God and you just got a history lesson about a time period that you really didn't care about. Why are we here? Why does this matter? I think that this is vitally important to our understanding, not only of how we are to be prepared, I think it will even inform our understanding of communion as we go through it. So we've, we've gotten the explanation. Now let's look at the encouragement, okay? We've explained these verses through human history. Now let's look at the encouragement. And I want to look at the encouragement through a lens, through a grid. I want to ask two questions. How and why does God prepare his people for persecution? That's the question, because that's what these verses are doing. God is preparing his people for a time yet to come for the Jews that are living in Daniel's day. There's a time coming when you will be persecuted. So I want to ask first, how does God do that? And then second, why does he do that? Okay, number one, how does God prepare his people for persecution? He does it in three ways. Number one, he prepares them by reminding them that he is in control. He prepares his people by reminding them that he is in control. Daniel's talking with an angel and the angel says, hey, time out. I need to talk to another angel buddy of mine and ask the question, how long is this going to happen? How long is God going to allow this to continue? Now, when my kids ask me, hey, dad, can we do such and such? And I go, yeah, sure. And they say, when can we do it tomorrow? My typical answer is, I don't know, sometime after breakfast and before dinner, right? I want to give myself a large window of time for, okay, now that'll work. I don't want to pin myself down to one o'clock. And if something comes up at one o'clock, I'm going to say no to it because uh, we're going to do this thing. Like, I want to give myself a big window in which to put, like, this is the best time. We can work it out now. God doesn't work that way. God says it will literally be the window of 2,300 days. To the day God is in charge, to the day he can specify exactly when something's going to happen. And so he tells his people, as he says, you're going to go through immense persecution and immense suffering. I want you to remember I'm in charge of it all. 
I know when it starts. I know when it ends. I know all of it. He prepares his people for persecution by reminding them that he is in control. He secondly prepares them for persecution by telling them that there's an end. He tells them in advance that the suffering will not last forever. There is an end to it. He says it'll happen for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, again, it can be taken two ways, either six years and 111 days or three years and 55 days. And here's what's interesting. Let's apply what we did a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we talked about prophecy can be understood. Maybe we won't fully ever understand how are we to take these 2,300 days? How are we to understand it? Is it uh, halves of days, so it's uh, 1150, or is it actually 2,300 days? Maybe we won't know, but here's what we can know. We don't have to know the specific details. What is this in here for? Here's what it's telling us. Number one, persecution will happen for a long time, but number two, it will happen for a limited time. That's what we need to know. That's what we can grasp from this. Regardless of how we're to take 2,300 evenings and mornings, we can know without a shadow of a doubt, God is telling his people, it's going to be long, but it's going to be limited. It's going to happen for a while, but there's an end point. Brothers and sisters, evil has an end date. It will not last forever. God prepares his people for persecution by reminding them that he's in control, by telling them that there's an end, and number three, by showing them the glory that will take place after the suffering. Showing them the glory that's going to take place after the suffering. This is verse 14. There's going to be a period of persecution. There's an end point to it. And then the holy place will be made righteous again. You'll gain control again. You'll be able to sacrifice again. You will have your own land in peace again. Now, it doesn't last for a long time. They're going to have hardships and struggles. But there will be glory that happens after the suffering. There will be a respite after the suffering. Suffering will end, and then something better will happen. My Bible says, the holy place will be made righteous. It's literally the word for vindicated. Everything that you've gone through will be vindicated in that moment when you rededicate the temple, and it's yours again. After all the awful experiences you're going to go through, there will be good times that come from it. So those are the three ways. How does God prepare his people for suffering? He does it by reminding them that he's in control, by telling them that there's an end, and by showing them the glory that's going to take place after the suffering. Now, three reasons why. Why does God prepare his people for suffering? Why does he actually go through this? Why doesn't he just allow them blindly to go through it? Three reasons why. Number one, he does this to give his people assurance so that they can stand firm. He does this to give his people assurance so that they can stand firm. He prepares his people for persecution to give them assurance so that they can stand firm. He speaks to them in verses 9 through 14 to give them peace, to give them confidence in the midst of their trouble, to give them confidence for the trial yet to come, to give them hope in God's sovereignty over their trouble and hope in God's sovereignty to bring it to an end. And that it's all a part of his plan. Number two, he gives his people preparation for persecution. Secondly, to give his people perspective so that they can persevere. He wants to give his people a perspective so they can persevere. He's giving them perspective. He's telling them, I can see the beginning. I can see the end. I can see where you fit. I can see what happens. And I want you to have that perspective. He prepares his people for times of trouble to remind them that the wicked who will be ruling, it's only for a moment. In verse 12, it says that this man will throw truth down to the ground 
and will do his will and succeed. It's hard for us to see this taking place. It's hard for us to watch the wicked prosper. And that's why God says, you need to know beforehand, this is going to be a period in history where the wicked are going to be prospering on a global scale. And I don't want you to be surprised by it. You remember Psalm 73? The psalmist says, why do the wicked prosper? They just keep on getting whatever they want. Whatever their heart's desire is, they get it. And here I am pursuing holiness, pursuing obedience, trying my best to honor God. And it seems like that profits me nothing. He says, it's in vain that I've been following you, God. And then he says, but then I saw their end. Then I saw perspective. Then God blew up my vision to see their end and see, wait a second, time out. They might be successful now, but in the end comes judgment. When the wicked succeed, I think the enemy tends to whisper in that moment, is God really good? Look at the wicked. Is God really good? Look at them getting everything that they wanted. Is God really good? I think that God has given his people perspective to say, don't listen. Don't listen. You've been prepared beforehand to know it's going to happen. Don't listen. Finally, number three, the third motive, the, the why. Why does God prepare his people for persecution? Number one, to give his people assurance so that they can stand firm. Number two, to give his people perspective so that they can persevere. And number three, to give his people hope so that they can have peace, to give his people hope so that they can have peace. He doesn't shrink back from telling them that this is going to be an awful time period, but there's beauty to come and the restoration will give you hope. He gives his people hope so that they can have peace even in the midst of the suffering. Now, he does all of that in verse 9 through 14 with his people Israel. And here's the incredible reality. He's done the exact same thing with you and with me in the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Let's put these how and whys together, okay? I'm going to put them together and let's see if they play themselves out in the New Testament. So we said the how and the why. Number one, God prepares his people for persecution by reminding them that he's in control to give his people assurance so that they can stand firm. John 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before I hated you. The, the world's going to hate you. Drop down to chapter 16, verse 2. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. An hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they didn't know the Father or me. So why is he telling us this? He's preparing his people, specifically his disciples. Why is he telling us? Verse 1 of chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. I'm preparing you so that you can be kept from stumbling. I want you to be able to stand firm. This is John 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. So just as he spoke to Old Testament Israel, he is speaking to us today, reminding us he's in control so that we can have assurance and stand firm. The second why, how and why God is preparing his people by telling them there's an end to the suffering to give his people perspective so that they can persevere. God does that in the New Testament as well. You remember Revelation chapter two, verse 10, when we studied the church in uh, Philadelphia, or this was the church in Smyrna rather, do not fear what you're about to suffer, Jesus says. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Here's the period of time. Be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus gives his people perspective so that they can persevere. You're going to have suffering. It's going to be 10 days. There's going to be an end. So be faithful through it and something good will happen on the end of it. Persevere through it. The third reality we saw this morning, God prepares his people for persecution by showing them the glory that will take place after the suffering to give his people hope so that they can have peace. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Jesus does this with us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17, Paul says, our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We're not looking to the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul gives us a perspective. He says, hey, we're going through suffering now, but there's glory yet to come. And that glory after suffering produces hope in suffering. Paul says this elsewhere, Romans chapter eight. Actually, just turn there. Romans chapter 8, I love this passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, the, the, the flesh, nothing good is working in me. Uh, chapter 8, verse 18, rather. I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared. Sufferings that I'm going through aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory yet to be revealed. I love this. Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 4, they're momentary light afflictions. And he says in Romans 8, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's yet to be revealed. I just, I, I stand with the Apostle Paul and I, I want to talk to him and say, time out, these don't feel momentary. The suffering I'm going through doesn't feel light. And I know I've gone through nothing like what Paul went through. Paul says it's momentary and it's light. Because why? He has a perspective of the future that informs his present. That's why God is speaking to the people in Daniel 8. Get a perspective of the future that will inform what you're about to go through. The glory that will be revealed to you, it's not even worth comparing to the suffering that you're going through. So just like God prepared the Jews in the Old Testament for the suffering that they're going to go through under Antiochus Epiphanes. God has prepared us for the suffering we're going to go through living in a broken and fallen world. And the book of Revelation is God preparing his people for the suffering that they're going to go through as they go into the time of great tribulation with the Antichrist, which we'll look at, uh, Lord willing, next week. So God does this for his people, Old Testament, New Testament, because he loves his people. Lastly, we'll end here. I think that we can go to Christ as our example of how this works itself out. Think about our Savior. Our Savior went to the cross, which we are celebrating this morning, because he was reminded that his father was in control and he gained assurance from that to stand firm in the midst of suffering. Think about how many times he would say, in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled, God the Father is on his throne. This is what I must go through. And in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled, I'm going to go through it. 
Think of when he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, I could call legions of angels. I could call so many angels down here. God's in control. He can do what he wants. He prays on the sovereignty of God. He asks the father, is there another way? And he trusts and he stands firm because God is in control. Secondly, our savior was prepared for the suffering he was going to go through by by being reminded there's an end to his suffering so he can persevere through it. Think of what he said to the soldiers in the garden of Gethsemane. Now is the hour of the power of darkness. They have a limited time. It's going to be lengthy, but it's limited. There's an end point to the power of darkness. When I rise up from the grave, it's over. So I can go through the suffering because I know there's an end. Think about the third reality. Jesus was prepared for his suffering because he was shown the glory that would take place after his suffering so that in his suffering, he would have hope and peace. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. He went through the suffering to gain glory for himself and for you and for me called sons and daughters of the most high king. That's what Hebrews chapter two says, the goal of the cross in bringing many sons to glory. He saw that and went, I can go through this. I can go through this. So as we get ready to partake in communion, we are reminded of two realities. Number one, we're reminded that God the Father has graciously told us this morning, there's going to be suffering yet to come, but I'm preparing you now so that you can go through it. But the even greater reality that cements our understanding of God's character in the midst of suffering is the cross. Our Savior went to the cross clinging to all of the promises that the Father had given to him so that in the midst of suffering, he would hold on to his Father and he would make it through the suffering with peace, with hope, with confident assurance and has set the example for you and for me. Really, the reality of why is God preparing his people for persecution? Because he loves them. He loves them. And he has proven his love once and for all at the cross. So I don't know what suffering you are going through, what you've gone through, and what you have yet to go through. But my friends, I want to plead with you to anchor your hope, not in your circumstances, but in the character of God. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Look to him who held on to all these promises and made it through his greatest of all suffering. So that in the midst of our suffering, we have a sympathetic high priest who says, hang on, there's an end coming and then a glory beyond all comprehension. Father, we thank you so much for these words that seem so foreign to us, especially in their historical context. And we thank you for the veracity of these words. The truthfulness of what you said was going to happen, happened exactly the way you said it. We can trust you, and we've seen that time and time again. But here this morning, Father, I pray that you would speak to us in such a way that we would be prepared just like Israel was prepared, that we would see that you have done that for us, that we would cling to your promises that are blood-bought at the cross, that are sealed in the resurrection, so that we can have hope for the times ahead, the times that we're in, the trials, the suffering, the hardships, not because you're out of control, you're in control. It's not because you don't love us. It's actually because you love us. And there is an end coming. 
And we cling to the hope that waits for us and the glory that waits for us after the trial is over. Father, I pray that we'd be reminded of those realities even now as we partake of communion together. May we partake with joy and gratitude and gratefulness that you've made a way for us to be prepared with promises that are blood-bought at the cross. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.